It's on page 1194 in the Pew Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. Any kids here kindergarten to second grade who'd like to go to children's church can go if they wish through the door over here by the piano. There'll be some adults there to receive you. If you'd like to go to children's church, you're welcome to. Kindergarten to second graders. Parents, if you'd like to go with them just to get them settled, you're welcome to go. Hebrews chapter 13. This morning, verses 20 and 21. Well, uh, at long last, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have come to the end of the sermon series in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, I went back and checked my records. We started studying Hebrews on September 7th, 2008. So, pretty much for the last 13 months, well, there's been a few exceptions. There's been a two, three couple guest speakers who've come and spoken. And we did that little six-week segment around Easter on Give the Gospel. But besides that, for the last 13 months, we've been plowing through this book. So I thought you all would really appreciate verse 22, where the author says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. (laughs) Yeah, it's like preachers are the same, no matter what generation. Um, But this morning I want to look at verses 20 and 21, not verse 22. I'd like to conclude this series by looking at verses 20 and 21, which are a great prayer and doxology. The, The writer finishes this great letter with a prayer for the people. Verses 18 and 19, he says, pray for me. And then in verses 20 and 21, he caps this this symphonic epistle with this wonderful prayer. And let me just read it. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And you say the last one. Amen. Amen. This is a great uh, prayer, not just because it's wonderful in and of itself, but it's a real fitting conclusion to Hebrews because I, I think you see within this prayer really a summary of the two major themes of Hebrews. Uh, you know, Hebrews has two overarching messages that run throughout the whole book. And in verse 20 is really a summary of the central message. And then in verse 21 is the summary of the central application or command of the book. So so that if you take these two verses, you have really an um, encapsulation of the whole book. So if this is like your first Sunday here, and you're thinking, man, I picked a lame Sunday to come to this church because they're finishing this book, don't, don't sweat it. Because this book, this verse that we're going to study, I think will show you what the whole book was about that we've been studying for the last 13 months, give or take. Um, so you have a prayer here in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 is the address to God. And verse 21 is the prayer request itself. And as I said, in each of these two verses, you have the major theme of Hebrews. So the first one, the first theme is verse 20. And if I were to summarize the first theme of Hebrews, it would be something like this. God sent Jesus to be the perfect Savior. That, that, I would say, is the overarching message of Hebrews. You could probably put it some different ways. But the point is, is Jesus is exalted throughout Hebrews as the Savior that we need. 
the perfect, ideal, long-awaited-for Savior from our sins. So look at verse 20 again. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. So I love it. In verse 20, he doesn't even get to the prayer. He's about to pray something for them, but he can't even get there because he just kind of gets lost in this praise for the one to whom he's praying. So until verse 21 is when we actually get the prayer request. But verse 20, he, he kind of gets sidetracked in a wonderful way on who God is and what God has done for us. And notice he says three things about God. Number one, he's the God of peace. Number two, through the blood of the eternal covenant. Number three, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And let me just take each of those, in, but we'll go in reverse order. Let's start with what God has done. God is the one who has brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. God has resurrected Jesus. This is, this is what he's praising God for. He hasn't even got to the prayer request. He's just lost in, God, you've raised Jesus. And isn't this a major theme in Hebrews? The exaltation of Jesus at God's right hand, that he's raised from the dead and, and he's seated at God's right hand. He's gone to the heavenly realms. Uh, several times in Hebrews we have Psalm 110.1 quoted where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the exaltation of Jesus, major theme in Hebrews. Here it is again. Jesus, the great shepherd, has been brought back from the dead. Now that language there, if you look a little more closely at that language that God has brought back from the dead, the Lord Jesus, it's a little bit funny because maybe you can't quite tell it in English, but in Greek, it's not the typical generic word for raising up from the dead. It, you know, the typical word you see throughout the New Testament when you're talking about Jesus' resurrection, the verb is egero, which means to raise up or resurrect. But this is a different word, and it's rarely used to describe the resurrection. It's, it's a word that's anago, which means to lead out, or to lead up, or to lead forth, to depart. And it's not usually a word that's associated with the resurrection. It's kind of a funny word that's being used here. You couple that with, with the next line, He brought or or led out from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That's a phrase that's not found in Hebrews either. So you kind of go, what's going on there? Sort of an interesting way to praise God for what he's done. And what this is, I think, is this is an allusion back to an Old Testament text. Now, if you've been studying Hebrews with us, should we be surprised at all to find an allusion back to the Old Testament? I mean, Hebrews is just soaked soaked with the Old Testament. How many times during the sermon series have I said, let's go back to the Old Testament to read the original story. And and here it is again. In the final verses, we find yet one more allusion to the Old Testament. So let's put a bookmark here in Hebrews 13 and go back to Isaiah chapter 63. And I think you'll see pretty clearly the verbal allusion. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 11. We're back in the Old Testament now. Isaiah is calling the Israelites to remember what God did for them at the Red Sea crossing. So in Isaiah 63.11, it says, Then his people, that is the Israelites, then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. So the Israelites are remembering back to the old days of Moses. 
Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Who is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? Who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? Who led them through the depths? So, so there's a memory here of something that took place in Israel's history, which is the crossing of the Red Sea. And so what you find here, going back to verse 11, is that same verb to lead is used to describe what God did for the Israelites. Where is he who brought them, who, who, really, who led them through the sea? And then look at this, with the shepherd of his flock. So there's the shepherd language. Who's the shepherd in this context? Moses. Israel is the sheep. So you have this idea of God leading out through the Red Sea, the shepherd Moses and his sheep, the Israelites who are facing certain death, trapped on the one hand between the Red Sea, trapped on the other hand between the armies of Pharaoh that were bearing down on them, caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. What are they going to do? No escape. And then God does the impossible. He parts the Red Sea. I mean, there's no other explanation. It's a miracle. God does a miracle. And the Israelites go through the Red Sea. God leads the shepherd Moses and the flock Israel out and up the other side. It's such a huge rescue. The Israelites and, and even Jews today, they look back on that event every Passover. Jews celebrate Passover. What are they doing? They're commemorating the central saving act of God in the history of their people when God rescued them from Egypt. Now, go to Hebrews 13. Notice that the writer of Hebrews adopts the same imagery, but now applies it to Jesus. In verse 20, God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. So now the rescue isn't from the ocean, but it's from death, from the grave, which is really the, the great watery chaos is death itself. And God has brought Jesus through that in His resurrection. Jesus now is the great shepherd of the sheep. Notice the little adjective great. That's code language in Hebrews for alerting us that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament in a superior way. You know, Jesus is called the high priest in, in Hebrews. But not just the high priest, he's called the what? The great high priest. Now he's the great shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he's superior to the priesthood of the Old Testament. He's superior to Moses the great shepherd of the Old Testament. So Christ has, has rescued us and sort of repeated the salvation of God, but in a greater way than in the Old Testament. So here you have the two central saving actions of God in the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was the exodus from Egypt, the Red Sea crossing. In the New Testament, Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised. And the author is saying God has done it again. He's done it on a greater scale. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so he's, he's just caught up in this. He hasn't even had a chance really to, um, to get to the prayer request yet because he's just meditating on, look what God has done for you. But look, it's not just that. Let's go back to the phrase before it. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus. So it's not just that Jesus was raised, but He was first crucified. First He shed His blood. Just like in Egypt, first there was the Passover and the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb followed by the Red Sea crossing. So, in the New Covenant, Jesus' blood is shed 
and then the resurrection from the dead. All these, these patterns are being repeated except fulfilled in even a greater way than in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> notice that it's the blood of the eternal covenant. Blood, covenant. Major Hebrews themes. Do you see all these? See why I said this verse is so cool? Just all of these Hebrews threads are being pulled together and brought into this verse. First of all, the blood of the covenant. Hebrews is a bloody book. You know? There's blood everywhere in this book. All these animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and yet they couldn't actually remove our sins. So Jesus shed his blood, and his blood can forgive us the way the Old Testament couldn't. You know, all this blood talk. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews tells us, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' blood is shed as to pay the price for our sins. But it's in doing so, He also establishes a greater covenant, the eternal covenant, which is better than the covenant under Moses. What's the eternal covenant? It's the new covenant that Jesus shed. When Jesus was there at the Last Supper, you know how the, the Jews have the Passover. Well, at the same Passover, Jesus is eating with His disciples. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus was at the Passover establishing a new Passover, a new communion, a new covenant. And this is in Hebrews 2. Put a bookmark here. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Here's the new covenant language. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. says, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one and it's founded on better promises. So again, this major Hebrews theme, Christ fulfills and surpasses the old covenant. The old covenant under Moses is gone. The new covenant under Christ has come. And then he quotes in verse uh, 7 and following, he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, that is the one that Moses gave Israelites, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with the forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful in my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the new covenant will be different from the old covenant. How? The old one was broken. The new one will therefore be eternal. It's the eternal covenant. It's not going to be broken like the old one was in the Old Testament. And then he describes it, verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So Jesus not only has been brought out of the dead by the Father, but a new covenant has been established. You know, it's amazing. The author hasn't even gotten to the prayer request yet. He's still just amazed at the God to whom he's praying, what God has done. And in fact, these two go together. The, the, the blood of the new covenant and the being raised from the dead, you know, they go together because the being raised vindicates and validates Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. 
you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? You say, well, he was, you know, a martyr. He was a good religious leader who, who stood up and is an example for us of sacrifice. No, no, more than that. He was dying as the perfect sacrifice for sins. How do you know? Because he was raised. If he was just dead, then he'd be like all the other philosophers and teachers throughout human history who are dead. And we'd say, well, that was interesting. They taught some good things. But he was raised. God vindicated him. One of the, uh, I think, probably most common critiques of Christianity in our culture today, if you go up to the average person and ask him, you know, why do you struggle with Christianity if you're not a Christian? I say one of the most common critiques people have is Christianity is too exclusive. Uh, You you know, you're saying Jesus is the only way. That seems really narrow-minded. That seems really... Um, bigoted, kind of spiritually bigoted. I mean, why do you think you're so right? What about all the other religions and that kind of thing? And, um, you know, we don't think we're so right. The the reason we believe Jesus is the only way, He's the only guy who was ever raised from the dead. That's why. I mean, that's the whole thing, is that He was raised. If He's not raised from the dead, then you're right. It's just another teaching. I mean, that's the whole thing is that he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be dying for our sins. And then he rose. If he's not raised, then, you know, Confucianism or, you know, a little Islam or a little Karbala or whatever you want to believe. I mean, does it really matter? But if he's raised from the dead, if that's true, then, then he is in a completely different class. He has been vindicated and validated by God. And he really did die for our sins. He really did make a new covenant. And so that's why the author, I think, begins this with verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. So because Jesus really died for our sins, and because it was validated through His resurrection and vindicated, therefore, God is now can be at peace with His people. There can be peace. You know, think about this idea of peace. What does it take for two people who are at odds with each other to have peace? Well, both of them have to come to the table and be reconciled. You can't just do one or the other. You know, whether it's in a marriage, uh, a strained business relationship, two friends at school, uh, two neighbors, relatives, whatever it is, if two people are at odds with each other, both of them have to come to the table to be reconciled. And that's how it is with us and God. We are in a strained relationship with God because of our sin. And, and often we think, okay, yeah, I've sinned. I, I've, I've not followed God's ways. I need to go make my peace with God. I, I need to be the one who's reconciled to God. That's true. But have you ever thought that God has to be reconciled to us? That God has to go from a position of hostility toward us to a position of peace and reconciliation? And so Jesus died on the cross in order to reconcile, first and foremost, not us to God, but God to us. And you say, why is that? Well, because we're sinful people. You know, we live our whole lives doing it our way, not God's way. Our attitudes are very self-righteous and self-sufficient. You know, the the big headline this week, if you've been following pop culture, is uh, Dave Letterman's Confessions to having all of these uh, relationships with women that worked for him. And, you know, how humiliating to sit there on national TV. And, you know, he tried to make it funny and whatever, like he does with everything. But still, he's talking about all this lurid stuff, 
and confessing it all. And, and you kind of look at that and you go, oh, yeah. But then I was kind of thinking, like, what would it be like if all of our own dirty laundry and all of our sin and all of the stuff of which we're embarrassed was put on national TV for the world to just gawk at for its entertainment? I mean, <laughs> I, who could handle that? It would be terrifying. If it was all there, if the whole world saw, from, from my most inmost thoughts and attitudes, things that have been in my head that no one's seen, to words that I've said to people in the, in the wrong way, to actions I've done, wow. Here's the thing. It is all visible to God. He does see it all. Even if I don't want to think that. He does. He sees it all. And He's a holy, righteous God. And so what do you do when you're a sinner in the presence of a holy God? I mean, we're in huge trouble. And because He's holy, because He's righteous and He's just, He can't just wink at it and be like, oh yeah, it's okay. No, it's no big deal. I mean, He's just. He's God. God will judge sin because He's a moral, righteous, and holy God. See, we need to fear the judgment of God. That's something we don't really fear. We fear all kinds of things except that. You know, we're afraid of Iran getting nuclear weapons. That's a legitimate fear. You know, or North Korea getting nuclear weapons given who's leading the countries right now. That's a legitimate fear. Uh, we fear uh, cancer. We fear diseases. Uh, conservatives fear Barack Obama. Liberals fear Sarah Palin. Um, we fear diseases. We fear all kinds of stuff. But it's nothing compared to the judgment of God coming against this world. You know? Take all of our fears in this world and bundle them together in a package. And it's like a puff compared to having to face the Creator with the way we have rejected Him. We owe Him everything. And we've given Him nothing. We are under the judgment of God. But the amazing message of the Bible is that He is the God of peace. And so God has done the unthinkable. He has done what it takes to be reconciled to us. God has, at the price of the blood of His own Son, paid the penalty so that we could be reconciled, so that He could be reconciled to us. Because on the cross, the judgment of God was being poured out on His own Son as a substitute so that He could be reconciled to His enemies. It's amazing that God would be reconciled to us at such a high price. And so, you know, it makes you want to jump right to the end of verse 21. Through uh, to Him be glory forever and ever. And you say, Amen. To Him be glory forever and ever. So the author hasn't even gotten to the prayer request yet. He's just amazed at what Jesus has done. This is the first major theme of Hebrews. Through His Son, God has provided the perfect Savior. God has been reconciled to us. But now there's another side of the equation, right? We have to be reconciled to God. We have to be reconciled to God. It's got to go both ways. And what I want you to see in this letter in verse 21 is that the reconciliation from us to God is also the work of God. That both sides of the equation 
come out because of God's power. Look at verse 21. So now here's the request, right? We haven't even gotten to the prayer request. Finally, it comes in verse 21. May God, dot, 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 verse 21, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ. So, so this is the second major theme of Hebrews. The second major theme of Hebrews is the need for Christians to persevere in their faith. You know, we've seen, how many times have we seen this in Hebrews? The call that we need to persevere, keep going, don't fall away, don't tire out in your faith, keep following Jesus, don't stop meeting with the other Christians, press ahead, press forward. Um, look, look, for instance, at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. I'll just to cite a few of them. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The writer says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The writer's worried that these people are drifting away. Right? So he's like, Don't drift. Come back. Have you ever drifted in your faith? Have you ever had those seasons in your life as a Christian where you've been drifting away from God? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Watch out for sin. Watch out for unbelief. Don't turn away from God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to fallen short of it. And so again and again and again throughout Hebrews, punctuated all throughout this letter is this call not to drift away, not to fade off, not to, uh, to lose your faith, not to get caught in sin and unbelief. But what's happening here, going back to Hebrews 13.21, is that rather than exhorting them to stay faithful again, now he's praying that they would stay faithful. So he's taking that second major theme of Hebrews and turning it into a prayer request. He's saying, God, I'm praying that you would do what it takes to keep these people faithful. And so he says in verse 21, may you equip, may God equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. So the prayer is, God, not only have you done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to us, but God, would you work by your Holy Spirit to cause us to be reconciled to you. So that God is actually working both sides of the equation. Isn't that amazing? Looking at the language, it's very clear. He says in verse 21, May God what? Equip you with everything good for doing His will. That God needs to give us the, the moral equipment that we need to do what He wants us to do. In, or to put it another way, without God's help, we don't have what it takes. We're deficient. That's what that, that concept here is, is that there, there's a moral and spiritual deficiency within us for doing His will. Um, when we look at the mirror, even as Christians, we see our deficiencies. You know, we have deficiencies of faith. Like, I don't trust God the way that I should. I'm filled up with anxiety or worry. I have deficiencies, we say, in my self-control. I'm too subject to my passions, whether it's lust or my uh, physical appetite or my uh, you know, desire for money or whatever it is. We have these passions and desires that rule us rather than self-control. We find ourselves angry. We find ourselves um, complaining or critical or gossipy or, you know, whatever it is. And we see these deficiencies in ourselves as Christians. We're like, how do I improve this? How do I not drift away? And the answer is, God has to equip us 
supernaturally. So even as Christians, we still rely upon God to keep equipping us supernaturally with what we need to live the Christian life. You know, I was thinking about this in my own life. One of the deficiencies in my own character that I've always wrestled with is um, just, I guess, I would call it the fear of man is one of my deficiencies. That, that I, I get so wound up when there's conflict or criticism. You know, I'm, I'm one of these people who I just don't like conflict. I like it when everyone's happy and we're all getting along. I'm sort of a people pleaser by nature. And so, you know, when there's conflict or criticism, even if it's this big, sometimes like my reaction can be this big. And I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want this to happen. Now, this is a real problem if you're going to be a pastor. (laughs) Because, you know, um, yeah, like you can't make everyone happy. This is a problem if you're going to be a leader. Anyone in leadership has to make decisions. And no one ever fully likes the decisions that a leader makes. You never get 100% agreement. And I'm a preacher, so it's like I've got to preach things in the Bible, like telling rooms full of people that we're sinners under the judgment of God. And if I'm like worried about what people think of me, then that's going to be problematic for being faithful to this book. So, so you know, this is something I've always struggled with. And um, I, I remember one day I was just praying. Something was happening. I, you know, I can't even remember what the conflict was, but there was just some tense situation that I was kind of facing here at church. And I can't even remember what it was. It's probably how big it was. probably that big. But I was like, ah! And, and I realized, you know, my problem is I don't have enough faith in God. I fear people, but I don't fear God. And I don't fear that God can protect me and God can solve a situation. And I remember I was just praying, and I was mad at myself. I'm like, God, why am I so bound up with fear in this situation? And I was walking along. I was out on one of my prayer walks. I can, in fact, I can remember exactly where I was over there on um, Union Street. And I, was, and I just said, Lord, would you just take this away from me and give me faith in you? And it was one of those times doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does happen where like I prayed and like I, it's like I prayed in one step and in the next step, God answered my prayer and my fear just went like poof and I was filled with courage. And, and since then, God has just helped me to be, to not fear people, to fear him, you know, there's a deficiency in me that was going to keep me from doing his will. And as a pastor, God has supplied this and I still don't like conflict. I mean, who does? If you like conflict, you know, then you have another kind of deficiency. But, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and since then, I've continued to have to have, as a pastor does, you have to have hard conversations with people. You have to say things that are not easy for people to hear. You have to deal with people at odds. You have to deal with criticism. But I can just testify that God has strengthened me to taking me to kind of a new level of faithfulness. And not that I still don't struggle sometimes, but God can fulfill, fill in those deficiencies in our character. But the key is, He does it by His power. It's not like, okay, God, I'm going to make you happy now. I'm going to do Your will. I'll be back when I get this all worked out. I think sometimes we think that. I'll go to church once I get some things straightened out in my life. You've got it backwards. The whole point of coming to church is to say, God... I need you to do what I can't do through all of these other things and approaches I've tried. I need you to change me and you to save my soul. And so it's a coming to God for His power. You see that? He equips us. In fact, it's even more emphatic in the next line. So the prayer is, equip us with everything good for doing His will and may He, see this, work in us what is pleasing to Him. You see that? God is working it in us. So that we're pleasing Him, but it's because He worked it into us. I, I don't know. I had the image as I read that idea of working in us 
of like a, a baker with a huge, massive pile of dough, just working it, working the yeast into it. And he's pushing it down and he's sweating because it's this massive pile of dough and he's got flour all over him and he's working it in and kneading it and pushing it. That's what God is doing with our souls as Christians. He's working His grace into it. Filling in all of those spiritual deficiencies we have because of our sin. God is making us holy and working in our lives. And sometimes it hurts to be squeezed and pushed, but He's doing it nonetheless. Working it into us. It's Him who does it in us. So that yes, we're reconciled to God. I'm sorry, God is reconciled to us. But for us to be reconciled to God takes Him working faith into us in the first place. Faith is a gift. Even the faith we have to believe and turn to Him to, be, to say, yes, I want to be reconciled to God comes as a result of His prior work in our lives. Now that, of course, raises the question, what about free will? What about our choice? You know, we're always so concerned about our free will as if that were the most important thing in the universe. Um, I do believe in free will, properly defined. You know, what's your will? That's kind of fun. Like, what is a will? Is it like an organ in my body? Can, you know, what, what, what is a will? And I, it, it's a way of describing our capacity to make a choice. We make choices. And I believe that you have a free will, that you can choose to do what you want to do. You're free to do that. But here's the question. Why do we want to do certain things? In other words, the, the will, I, I don't believe in free will as if the will is some kind of absolute, uh, unaffected decision-making power that's almost outside of me that, that can ignore who I am. The will comes out of who we are. We choose based upon who we are and what we want. So you can do what you want. You can choose what you want. But what do you want? So... Put it another way, our will is the slave of our heart. Your heart is who you are. It's what you want. It's your desires. It's everything that makes you up. And out of that comes what you want, and that's what you choose freely to do. So, yeah, we're free to choose, but we choose according to our natures and according to our hearts. And what do sinners want? To glorify Jesus? No. We want to glorify ourselves. I, I want to be like King Nebuchadnezzar. Look what my hand has built. Look at my mighty empire. You know, ha ha, look at me and my glory. I mean, that's what we want as sinners. So, so, so our hearts are sovereign over our wills. But praise God, He is sovereign over our hearts. And this is the great message that God can change our hearts, which then allows us to choose a different path. That God changes something within us so that our wills are now liberated to do what pleases God. You must be born again before you can choose to believe in Jesus. Do you see that? First, God changes your heart. Then you say, I will repent and believe in Jesus and receive Christ as my Savior. But it happen God's work happens first. Look, it's in the New Covenant. Go back to Hebrews 8. It's all right there in the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. What, happens, what did Jesus purchase in the New Covenant? We say He purchased our forgiveness. True. Look at verse 12. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So on the cross, in the New Covenant, Jesus purchased God's reconciliation to us, forgiving us of our sins. 
But notice that in the same new covenant on the cross, God also purchased the grace to turn us toward Him. Look at verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Here's the blessing of the new covenant. He says, I will put My law in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. So on the cross, Jesus not only purchased My forgiveness, He also purchased My faith. He purchased the change of My heart. So that on the cross, Jesus reconciled God to me, but He also purchased what it was necessary for me to be reconciled to Him. So that the faith I have in Jesus is a result of God's work in me. Because if God just was reconciled to me and said, hey Jeremy, I'm reconciled to you. I forgive you. Come on Jeremy. Come on, come on, come on. You know, here boy. You know, and I, would, would, I, would I come to God? Of course not. Of course I wouldn't. Because I'm a sinner. I want to be God. You know, I don't want a leash. I want to be a free dog running, you know, out there wherever I want to go. I wouldn't come to God. But God so powerfully works that He even changes my heart so that I freely desire now to come to my Savior because He's changed what is broken and deficient within me. Or to put it another way, to summarize all of verses 20 and 21, I'll give you three words. Just remember remember these three words. Summarizes it. Summarizes the New Testament. Summarizes the whole Bible. Three words. God saves sinners. That's the whole thing. God saves sinners. Listen to how J.I. Packer puts it. He takes that same phrase, God saves sinners. He breaks down the three words. Listen to J.I. Packer. Packer says, God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing. That's God. But it's God saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory. He plans, achieves, communicates redemption, Calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. God saves sinners. Men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. Which is why he concludes his letter with this amazing doxology. To Him be the glory forever and ever. You see, if our reconciliation to God was ultimately hinged upon ourselves, then it wouldn't be to Him be the glory forever and ever. It would be to Him be 80% of the glory or 70%. And 30% is me because look what a great person I am. No. To Him be the glory forever and ever because God has done it all. And so I have hope. I have hope for my own spiritual life. I have hope for pastoring you in your spiritual lives, not because I have some pastor tricks that I can use to help you. My hope is that we have a great God who can do anything, who can save anyone, who can supply any deficiency, no matter what that deficiency may be. 
my hope is that God saves sinners. And so to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.